The views and discussion expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of the hosts of the program. WMKV, Maple Knoll Communities, WLHS, the Lakota Local School District, or staff and management. The information and advice presented are educational in nature and not intended to be taken as specific legal, accounting, or other professional advice. Always consult with your own legal, accounting, or other professional before making any investment. Welcome to Real Life Real Estate Investing, a show to help you gain financial freedom by investing in real estate. Brought to you by the Real Estate Investors Association of Cincinnati and the Ohio Real Estate Investors Association. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing on WMKV, WLHS, and the Maple Knoll Radio Network. And now your host, Vena Jones-Cox. Good evening and welcome to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I am your host, Vina Jones-Cox, and I am hoping that this evening Mike has his hand near the cough button, because there is a reason for it being called that, and I uh, am finding myself here on this Thanksgiving day with a, with a cough that, uh, you know interrupted my introduction there so yep coming down with the cold here it's question and answer week on real life real estate investing uh as it is on the last wednesday of nearly every month and that means it's sort of an open mic day for all of you out there who have questions about getting started investing in real estate or managing your rentals or financing and how it works or anything else you would like to know in fact there's really no planned program at all it's just your questions if you would like to call in a question and you're listening in the greater cincinnati area which means probably you have your radio on the number is 772-9658 if you're listening to us on the web at wmkvfm.org on the live streaming audio it number is 877-772-9658. If you'd like to send an email, go to our website, which is realliferealestate.com, and click the button that says, ask me a question, and fill in the question, and from where you are writing, because that sometimes does matter in terms of the answer, and send the question in that way. Now, Listeners who are subscribed to our, annu- our annual, our weekly e-letter, uh, re- get 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 notice of this show beforehand, and uh, you can do that by the way at realliferealestate.com as well. And so we always have some questions that came in before the program that uh, I get a, a chance to answer. Uh, I have one here from Van who says, "How about you do a show on health insurance?" What type of insurance plans do most real estate investors have? Uh, what have you fa- found to be the best plan and with what company? And uh, that, is a, that is a consistent um, question for the real estate entrepreneur who is at that point in their business where they're starting to need to make a decision between do I, do I keep my job, even though I might be making more money per hour in my real estate business. Uh, but if I give up that job, I'm giving up certain other things like 
of course, my health insurance, my 401k matching contributions, all of those sorts of things. And that ends up being on me from here on out. I don't really have any great recommendations for insurance van because the plans are so similar now uh, for self-employed people, thanks to the um, the Obamacare thing. I should I should use the politically term uh, correct and appropriate term for that, but I can't think of what it is. Um, Every real estate entrepreneur and small business person I know is complaining loudly that their insurance premiums have uh, doubled and tripled uh, since the this all went into effect a couple of years back, and that the amount of um, coverage they were getting was shrinking simultaneously. So uh, I can tell you that for as as I researched this for myself, um, the thing that I came up with that seemed to work best in my own situation was a very high deductible policy. Now you can't get you can't get the deductibles as high as you used to be able to. That's another another rule that uh, came into effect. You used to be you could buy a policy with a $20,000 deductible so that it only kicked in if something really bad happened to you. You had some major surgery or medical issue. Uh, and on those, of course, the premiums were significantly less and people who people were basically self-insuring. I can, you know, I can afford to pay for the first $20,000 of my own healthcare. And so I'm going to get a very high deductible policy that just covers it if I need a brain transplant or something. Uh, I think the highest deductible that you can get now is around $6,000, which means that the premiums are much more than they were when the deductible was, was uh, 20 But the key thing here is that you can also have a self-directed health savings account, a, an account that you can put money into for your health care without paying taxes on the income first, and then take it out for medical care also uh, without paying taxes on it. So um, the the maximum that you can put in per year is not a huge amount, but like other self-directed plans, if you know how to take your $2,500 uh, contribution that you make this year and use it in investments to turn it into $6,000, which is the amount of yours deductible. That means you are then covered until you use up that deductible. So that's something you want to look at into is a self-directed health savings account. And if you go back, go to realliferealestate.com, go back in the list of podcasts until you see uh, one by John Bowens or John Heyer, John Bowens of Equity Trust Company or John Heyer of realestatetaxlaw.com, they both discuss those self-directed HSAs. And beyond that, it's a matter of shopping for a plan that um, is HSA compatible because you are not allowed to simply have the HSA and not also the insurance policy. Wow, I got all the way through that and didn't say anything hardly political at all. That was really good. It's <laughs> real life real estate investing and it's question and answer week. So if you have questions about um, real estate rentals, wholesaling, finding deals, financing them, you can either give us a call at 877-772-9658 or you can uh, go to realliferealestate.com, click the ask a question button, send it in via email. We'll be back right after this. 
Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. It's question and answer week this day before Thanksgiving. And I know everybody's traveling off to see family and get groceries for tomorrow and eat turkey and all that stuff. But we have a show to do. So if you have real estate questions, you better interrupt what you're doing and call them in at 877 877- Seven seven two nine six five eight, or send an email by going to our website at realliferealestate.com. Any questions that you have today in regards to real estate investing, even if you think it's a newbie question, probably everybody else knows what's happening and you don't, that's still you know, cool. You can ask any question that you have, whether you think it's a good one or not, because if you have it, you probably, there's probably lots of other people who also have the same exact question. Uh, Again, realliferealestate.com is the way to go to send it uh, here via email, because uh, there is a, a tab there that says ask Vina a question and it is uh, gonna get here uh, very quickly that way but what's even quicker is calling calling realliferealestate.com or calling Real Life Real Estate at 877-772-9658. I have a question here that I've been trying to read my way through while I am talking that is a long one. It's from Greg from Detroit. He says, I'm a longtime listener and a big fan of all you do for real estate investors. There's an issue that's been a concern to me for many years. I thought I had it resolved until I heard one of your recent podcasts where you adamantly insisted that all landlords should have properties in an LLC. Well, now let me clarify there, Greg. It wasn't me that adamantly insisted upon that. It was Bill Bronchek who... (laughs) the attorney who adamantly insisted upon it. Uh, He says, my wife and I currently have 10 properties, all managed by property managers and all out of state in four different states. Early in our investing careers, we moved the properties into LLCs, dealing with the complexities of the state filings, resident agent requirements and insurance changes. A few years ago, we joined a large real estate investing group that discouraged the use of LLCs because of the due on sale issues you have discussed and the risk if you don't get the insurance clauses right. Instead, they recommended one property proper property management, proper property management, and two, a large liability policy. Uh, Around that time, I heard a podcast that had a guest from the insurance industry who said a the biggest payout they'd ever seen in their career was a million dollars on a single family home. From that moment, it seemed like the insurance route was a better solution. We currently have a $1 million liability coverage on all of our individual policies, plus a $2 million umbrella liability policy. I felt very comfortable with all that until hearing your recent show, given the insurance protections, would that make you feel comfortable or would you still move the properties into an LLC? Well, Greg, you heard the part at the beginning about legal accounting and other professional advice, right? So I'm going to give you my non-attorney view on this, and then you're going to talk to an attorney who understands these issues and find out where where the balance is for you here. Because part of the 
complexity here is that you do own properties in four different states and there are some states that if you are well even if you're even if you're a resident of the state and have an LLC filed there having having the entity itself is expensive that that you get charged you know 400 to I think out in California it's close to a thousand dollars a year just for the privilege of owning a limited liability company and yes there are filings that you have to do because you're a foreign corporation and 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 so there's there's that sort of practical hassles and potential extra cost and yes insurance will cover most of what you worry about in terms of what's going to happen here where I could lose money but there are certain risks that you take on as a property owner that are not insurable. You cannot buy insurance against certain kinds of risks that could result in an expensive lawsuit and or judgment. For instance, if you or your property manager is found to have committed a fair housing violation, there's no insurance against that. If uh, most environmental hazards, um, lead poisoning, uh, radon uh, issues, um, uh, even even CO2. You know, some the the water heater isn't vented right, and people get sick from not CO2 from carbon monoxide, CO, <laughs> CO poisoning. Uh, those things are usually specifically excluded in your insurance policy. Now, the purpose of an LLC or LLCs plural in your case is not that you know suddenly you're not liable for that nobody can sue you nobody that's not that's not the case the purpose of it is to segregate these assets which are riskier than something like a certificate of deposit into their own little ownership so that what is at risk should this happen is the properties themselves and not the properties plus your bank account and your personal home and all of that stuff. That's why people have LLCs and insurance both. So um, you're going to have to, you know, it, it's it. it all, all these things are lightning strikes, right? If if you if you keep the paint tight in your house, it's probable that you will never have a uh, a lead paint claim, although not impossible because lead is found in houses where the paint is not flaking all the time. Uh, if you make sure your property is well maintained, some of these environmental hazards, unlikely if you have good property management that, that, that doesn't commit fair housing violations, although that's easier to do than you would think. Uh, all things that would protect you, but if lightning strikes... A million dollar settlement in a lead paint suit or a wrongful death suit because of some environmental problem that is uninsurable um, would not be a huge settlement. So uh, I'm going to tell you it's up to you and at the same time tell you that that's why folks do what they do with the limited liability companies. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox. We're going to go to the phones now and talk to Eileen on line one. Eileen, welcome to Real Life Real Estate. Hi. Well, uh, happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving to you. And I, I didn't want you to be lonely, so I called in. I appreciate that because I, I'm lonely I'm lonely, and I have a cold. So I'm, I know. I heard that. I'm lonely and whiny, both. 
Oh, poor I thing. I know. Um, anyway, I really don't, I'm not into real estate other than I own a home or half of a home, I guess, by now mm-hmm. uh, that I live in. Um, but I do have one question while I was waiting. Um, can property owners who rent to, you know, who are rent, you know, rent out, can they, in the city of Cincinnati, can they uh, charge for directly for uh, water? Well, um, not in the sense that I think that you are thinking. The policy of uh, waterworks organizations throughout the state of Ohio is that the bill goes with the property, not with the person who's using the water. Okay. And that has caused endless consternation amongst uh rental housing providers throughout the state for decades and decades because what it means effectively is that even if if my tenant and I sign a lease where we agree that the tenant is going to be responsible for paying for the water because they use the water mm-hmm. that the water works will not directly bill the tenant now they will they will send the tenant a duplicate bill they'll send a tenant they'll send me bill and send the tenant a bill that has their name on it but if the tenant doesn't pay it uh it is assumed to be my bill and it is uh it is very common for tenants to move out and leave sizable water bills in the in the hundreds of dollars that uh the landlord kind of has to pay because the waterworks will not you know, they'll shut the water off and you can't move somebody else in there if you don't pay the bill. Yeah. And so the reason, I'm sorry, the reason I was asking is I remember, oh, uh, like 30-some years ago, uh, 38, 39 years ago, I was renting a, a a small house from a priest friend who was in charge of the house for a lady in the nursing home. And somebody came around, a politician, I, I don't know, somebody came up about paying my the water bill, and I said, well, I pay it. Oh, you're not allowed to. <laughs> and I said, well, it's an agreement that, you know, I just pay the utilities, and I was, like, paying $60 a month, and if I couldn't afford it, then I didn't have to pay it. I mean, that, you know. And so I've said that to people that they'll say, oh, we have to pay the water. And I was like, I don't think you're allowed <laughs> to in Ohio, or in, at least in Cincinnati. And they're like, oh, we pay it. I'm like, okay, never mind. No, they're they're they are they are allowed to. I mean, it's it it it. Yeah. This is this is you know all all misunderstanding around who is getting the bill versus who is responsible for the bill per the lease because, you know, the deal the deal between the owner and the waterworks whether the owner likes it this way or not is that the owner is always responsible for the bill, but the de- the deal between the owner and the tenant is usually in a single family home anyway is usually, look, you, you use the water, you pay for the water. If you don't like the size of your water bill, you use less water, just like it is when you own your own house, right? It's just that, exactly. it's just that if, the, if the tenant moves out and has not paid that bill, uh, it, it goes back on the owner, which a lot, of, a lot of rental housing providers are ask themselves the question, why is that the only utility for which that's true? Gas and electric? You know, if the if the tenant doesn't pay the bill, it gets shut off and they have to pay it to get it turned back on. You know, cable, all that all that stuff that 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 the resident uses, the resident pays for water is the only one 
that uh, the the state law says uh, ultimately, no matter what the lease agreement says, the water the water company is allowed to go after the owner for it, not the user. Well, I also remember when I first moved in over there, the lady who was renting from the priest before that passed away. And I, it was a hot day in August, of course, and I was supposed to go out with the family, and the water got shut off. Mm. <laughs> and I'm like, no! Of course, who are you going to call? Your mom and dad. So I called them, and they called the water works, and they said, oh, it's supposed to go to the attorney that was handling the estate or something. I don't know. Uh-huh. Finally, my parents got turned back on by saying, look, if it's not from the attorney within, you know, the end of the week, um, we'll pay it. And we've been paying for, you know, X number of thousand of years or whatever. And they said, okay. Mm-hmm. So I was just curious how they would, you know, do that. But it, it, you answered that very well. Thank you. Yeah, it's got... Uh, it- it's kind of a strange system and and not all states are like this in some states if you're the tenant you call the water department you say here's where i live now come turn my water on here's my here's how you bill me and the water company does that and if you don't pay your bill it gets turned off and that's that's just not the way it works here of course that was actually almost a single family or a two family because any of the apartments we ever lived in my late husband and i before we bought the house um there was no separate water meter, mm-hmm. you know, so it was like we never got charged for water. Now, indirectly, I'm sure they yes. somehow, <laughs> you know, it's, yeah, it's all, kind of, all that stuff gets built in, you know, the, oh, the, yeah. the when when the when the city decides that they're going to have a. $160 a year annual inspection and make landlords open up their doors and have inspections and and so on and they oh it's for the it's for the health of the tenant well do do you know the tenant's rent's going to go up 160 bucks cuz <laughs> you know well, it's one way or another it gets it gets it gets absorbed into the rents you know well it's even when uh different taxes that come on with the property owner so I won't mention a in particular but we just had one coming up and people were like, well, I don't own the house. I don't care. And I said, uh-uh. They're going to raise your rent. Mm-hmm. They won't. Oh, yeah, they can. Yeah. And and they're like, oh, really? I go, yeah. Uh, I mean, yes, most of them don't raise it right away, and it doesn't go up that much. Mm-hmm. But they've got to get it from somewhere. Yep. So anyway, well, I'll let you go. I've got kitty cats meowing at me saying, whoa, whoa. <laughs> Okay. Thank you for your call, Eileen. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Have a nice Thanksgiving. You too. Bye-bye. You're you're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing. It's question and answer week on Real Life Real Estate. If you have a question about uh, really anything, give us a call at 877-772-9658, or uh, you can send us an email by going to realliferealestate.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox. It's the last Wednesday of the month, which makes it Q&A week. You're on Real Life Real Estate. You can ask your questions by calling at 877-772-9658 or by sending an email. You go to realliferealestate.com, click the button that says send us an email, ask a question, and fill it in there, and be sure to say where you are writing from. And I'll give you a great example of why that is a necessary step. And in fact, maybe we better just like put it on the form that you can't send it without that 
Somebody make a note of that. Um, Dave has the question, how can you fight a county that lowers your tax value after the Board of Revision and then raises the value by three to 400% during the next tax period with no reason and won't recognize any appraisal? And a reason it would have been nice to know where you were writing from there is that uh, it depends on what state you're in. There are uh, different rules in different states that say what sort of appraisals, what sort of, what, what the process is, what sort of appraisals have to be accepted and what sort of appraisals will not be accepted or cannot be accepted. And my answer to you, Dave, would be go get an attorney who is really familiar with this process. There's almost always somebody who specializes in uh, new board of revision uh, hearings. Now, it's possible also, I know in, in some states, and I believe Ohio is one of them, you can only you can only ask for a revision every so often. You can't go in every year and say, my house is worth less, my house is worth less, my house is worth less. And I'm wondering if that's what you're running up against, is that you just did the revision and then they played this trick of saying, well, sure, your house is only worth 100 Psych, it's worth 400 And now you can't appeal again because you've done it too quickly. But find an attorney who does this all the time and consult with them because it does sound a little bit like either either something has been messed up. You know, it could just be a mistake, not not that you want to let it stand because it's costing you four times as much money or some game is being played here. And I would go talk to an attorney about that. All right, let's go to line one and talk to Roger, who's calling from San Antonio. Roger, welcome to Real Life Real Estate. Hi, Vina. Happy Thanksgiving, almost. Happy Thanksgiving, almost to you too. I'm going to be in. I'm going to be in San Antonio in February. Saw, oh, great! Yeah, I saw your saw your saw your thing came up and went. Oh, yeah, that's right. It's warm down there. <laughs> it, it is. Listen, uh, what's your favorite way to find a phone number and or address of owners of vacant, neglected houses when uh, normal avenues don't work? Yeah, see, there's the there's the key there, right there, right. <laughs> You've already you've already uh-huh. tried that. You've already tried the county records. You've already tried the mailing the postcard right. to the house with a thing that says address correction requested. You've already tried Facebook. You've already Googled the people and tried to see if there was anything uh, to be seen there. And now you're kind of at a dead end. Yes. I will give you I will give you the answer that you don't want to hear, and I will give you the answer that you do want to hear. Okay. Um, okay. The answer that you don't want to hear is at that point I stop because right. it in the time that it in the time and for the money that it would take to track that person down I can probably literally find a hundred additional names and print a hundred additional postcards and put a hundred additional stamps on it and just move on and find somebody that's easier to find. I just I just don't okay. I don't I don't I don't spend the extra time and money because. In weighing out the, you know, you're really talking about like five percent of people that you just like you, you've tried what what you can try in ten minutes and it's just not working. The yeah. answer that you are looking for is that you can't um, the, the 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 various uh, online people finder sites that are out there, uh, uh, Spokio, Pipple, uh, uh, things like that, typically right. don't have a whole lot more information than is available in the public record. No. And and that is why they are so inexpensive. 
if you really but you really want to track somebody down like you know like like their vacant house is next door to your occupied house and it's dragging down your value and you really got to get it either bought or sold or something because it's 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 literally hurting you you need to go to somebody with a skip tracer license or a private detective's license because they have access to databases uh, LexisNexis being one of them, but there's a lot more that have scary amounts of information about you. I mean, right. I, ran, I ran myself through one of those once, and they had me associated with people that I knew in high school. Like they, like they had, they had their names associated with mine. They, they knew where I banked. They knew, they knew everything about me. The problem is that doesn't cost nineteen dollars. That costs like a hundred and nineteen dollars to get that kind of right. search so the only the only time at which i would uh do something like that would be if i had some really s serious reason to want um to really want that person's name and to really think that they were very motivated to sell and then yeah i'd spend the money but the way i do it is i would call a private detective call an attorney i knew you know get the search done that way but it costs money okay Thank you very much. You're very welcome, Roger, and hopefully I will see you Bye -bye. in San Antonio in February. Uh, you're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing. It's question and answer week. We have uh, a couple more questions that have come in from the website at realliferealestate.com. Uh, this one is from Marissa, who says, I am very interested in understanding the distinction, if any, between purchasing a bank-owned property directly versus bidding at a foreclosure sale, I assume that nurtured banking relationships are a must. Uh, well, Marissa, they're actually they are actually quite different. If you're talking about the difference between going to the trustee sale or the sheriff sale on the day of the auction and bidding and hoping you have the high bid to win the property versus buying that property when it is already bank owned. So it's already been through the sheriff's sale. The bank either purchased it, was the winning bidder at the sheriff's sale, or uh, received it as part of a deed in lieu of foreclosure, something of that nature. Um, it is, it is a, a really different process. And the key difference is that when you are bidding at a foreclosure sale of some sort, you are making a bid that is called as is where is so in other words the sheriff or in deed of trust states the trustee who is holding the auction is only offering you what is there without without disclosing what is there because they don't know what is there in other words when you are the winning bidder you must then write the check even if after the sale you go over to the property and look in the windows and find out that there's no inside to the property it's just a shell and didn't look like that from the street and that's why you bid $180,000 for it but once you get there and get inside you find out that there's there's massive problems that make it worth much much less than what you paid for it too bad you still have to write the check the sheriffs do not, or the sheriffs, trustees, etc., do not guarantee good title. Now, in theory, if a property goes through a sheriff sale, it clears all the liens, right? Well, sort of. 
it clears all the liens if all of the lien holders were notified of the sale and given the opportunity to come to bid to protect their lien. And it happens quite often that something is missed in that process. The bank the bank goes and gets a title search done and something is missed. Like, I'll give you, give you an example. I bought a house in Columbus a few years back that had already gone through a share sale. And when we did the title search on it, because we always do the title search on it, um, it turned out that two owners ago, you know you're going to be able to follow this, Marissa, because you're, you're an attorney, but two, two owners ago, there were a husband and wife who owned the property, got divorced, but, but they were both still on the deed, and then the husband quit claimed the property to the next owner who was the owner before the owner who went into foreclosure. The wife did not sign the quit claim deed. So really what the what the next owner got was half of the property. He got the husband's half of the property. He did not get the wife's half because she had not signed the quit claim deed. And then that guy sold it to somebody else. And then that person was the one who went into foreclosure. It went through the sheriff's sale. I bought it from the bank after the sheriff's sale. The problem was since that wife ages and ages ago, this was like, this had happened like 17 years previously, was not notified when the sheriff's sale happened that there was this property that she potentially had some interest in that was going to sale and that if she had anything to say about it, she should either object or come to the sheriff's sale and bid. She was never notified and therefore her interest was not wiped out by that sale. So the fact that I was buying it directly from the bank instead of bidding it, bidding on it at the foreclosure sale meant that I had the opportunity to do that title search and that the bank had had to give me clear title in order to sell it, which meant they had to fix it. If I'd have bought it at the sheriff's sale, I would have had to fix it. And tracking down that owner and getting a signature and potentially, you know, who knows, she could be dead. We could be working with heirs. You know, there's there's that that sort of thing is it's it's not an everyday occurrence, but it happens regularly enough that it's something to worry about. So at the sheriff's sale, you generally do not have an opportunity to look at the condition of the property prior to the sale unless the owner happens to let you in or you happen to be familiar with the property. You are not being guaranteed clear title and you cannot give it back. You can't you can't do an inspection later and say, I'm not paying for this because it's not what I thought it was. When you buy from a bank, you're buying from an owner. So you have that opportunity to get in the property, look at it, do your valuation, do your inspection, make your offer. You can have contingencies in your offer that say, if the title isn't clear, I'm not buying it, things like that. Uh, really, really a very different process. In a lot of ways, buying f- directly from the bank is a lot less risky than buying at a foreclosure sale is the bottom line. Uh, very much appreciate your uh, question. And uh, we're going to answer some more right after the break. If you have a question on question and answer week this week, give us a call at 877-772-9658 or send it via realliferealestate.com, the Ask Vina a Question tab. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox. This is our pre-Thanksgiving question and answer week. There's one every year. It's weird how it works out that way. Last Wednesday of every month is always open mic day here on Real Life Real Estate. You can ask questions throughout the month by going to realliferealestate.com and just 
go into the Ask a Question tab. Uh, we will catch them during question and answer week, or if we have a guest during the month who has some expertise in that area, they will answer those as well. While you're there, you can sign up for our weekly e-letter, which will let you know about the upcoming program. Usually has an article by or about our guests or topics and keeps you informed on what is going on in real estate throughout the country. That's realliferealestate.com. You'll see the join our e-letter little box up there at the top. If you'd like to take a minute to do that, go right ahead. Some more questions that have come in via email at our website, realliferealestate.com. This one is from Stephen, who is from Pennsylvania. And he says, I'm wondering which of the following would trigger a transfer tax on my side as the buyer, because the Pennsylvania transfer tax is 2%. And then he gives me a list. He says, would buying it subject to the existing loan trigger transfer tax? Yes, because the deed transferred. Would a lease option trigger a transfer tax? Probably not, because the deed did not transfer. Would owner financing or wraparound mortgage trigger? The answer is yes, because the deed transfers. And he says, and out of all of those options listed above, what would be the best strategy to avoid or minimize it and not pay it twice, once when buying and once when selling? Would assignment of contract avoid double paying of the transfer taxes? Now, see, Stephen, this is why it's so important that you say where you're from. Because Pennsylvania is is unique to my knowledge amongst states in the union in that it has instituted a transfer tax on contract assignments. Like wholesalers have to pay transfer tax for assigning a contract and then also the seller pays it to sell to the buyer. So it's actually, as far as I can tell, getting collected twice. In addition to that, one of my students in Pennsylvania was recently told by his title company that because uh, he was he, so so he had this house and the the tax value on it was like 120, but it was a wreck. It wasn't wasn't worth 120. Probably wasn't worth 120 fixed up, but it needed so much work that it was like a shell. Okay, he was selling it for for he was wholesaling it for like twenty three thousand dollars. So so a, about a fifth of what the tax valuation was. And his title company told him that they had been told that in cases like this where the sale was at at was it was a was a uh, uh, assignment that he was going to have to pay transfer taxes on the tax value in other words on the 120 not on the 23 that he was selling it for now i sent him back to check whether that was the title company saying that or the state saying that and i don't know what the answer to that was yet but um, no, no. The answer to your question is assignment of contract is not going to avoid this for you in Pennsylvania. Now, but however, you are a little bit over concerned here, possibly, because generally the seller pays the transfer tax. So when you buy subject to or you buy with owner financing or a wraparound mortgage, the seller is generally responsible for paying for that. It's only when you sell that you are responsible for paying for it. And if you were to do what a lot of people do, and let's say um, you buy it with owner financing and then you sell it on lease option, you're probably not going to have to pay 
the transfer tax for selling on lease option, but when the buyer buys the property for real, so two years pass and they get qualified for not financing and go to bank, then you're going to have to pay it. But of course, then you have money to pay it because you sold the property. Now, as a practical matter, many times if you're buying a property, let's say subject to the existing loan, you are literally just taking over the loan. You know, it's a $150,000 loan and you want to pay $150,000 for the house and your concern may be, uh, it may be that it's the seller's responsibility, but I'm the one paying it because they're not getting any money at the closing, so I have to pay it. And I, and I get that, but, you know, it is what it is. If you don't like it, go vote somebody else into office in Pennsylvania who will take a look at this and say, wow, that seems like a really high transfer tax. Although, it's really not that high a transfer tax. Most Most states have something in that range and some I know are even higher. There's places in Maryland where it's significantly higher than that. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing question and answer week here on Real Life Real Estate. If you have any last minute questions and they are last minute because uh, if you go to realliferealestate.com right now and put your question in, there's a chance I'm going to get it before the end of the show. Otherwise, it'll probably get answered next month. Uh, Question here from Z spelled Z, like the last letter of the alphabet. Uh, Z says, you are terrific. Can you talk about hard money lenders as of today and looking forward into 2016? Specifically, what is the current interest rate range for hard money? Um, Well, Z, if if you're talking about true hard money, where the lender is a professional lender who is doing true asset based lending, in other words, they're, they might be looking at your credit to make sure you're a deadbeat, but really what they care about is are they lending mo- no more than 65% of the value of the property and it's a, it's a shorter term loan, usually 12 to 18 months. Um, the range is about 12 to 15% for residential property. For commercial property, I've seen hard money rates at as high as 18%. And in fact, I occasionally see I occasionally see hard money even uh, with residential properties offered at like 18%. In addition to the in addition to the uh, interest rate, there's generally also points. And the points on a residential hard money loan range from about 2 to 5%. And some of that depends on who the lender is. Some of it depends on how much money you've borrowed from that lender. I've seen situations where... Um, the first loan you get with a lender is is five points and fifteen percent interest, and the second one is two points and or three points and fifteen percent, and then maybe it goes down to two points and fifteen percent. So it, it it varies it varies a lot from lender to lender. Now here's the here's the thing for folks who are listening to the show for the first time and are just or just getting into real estate and are saying, "Holy, how can people? Is that even legal to charge fifteen percent interest on a loan?" The key thing to understand about hard money loans is that they are meant for short-term financing. They are meant for people who are going to buy a house, do work on it, and fix it within typically four to six months. They are not long-term loans. And over the course of the four to six months that most people would have a hard money loan, the difference between 12% interest and 15% interest is just not that much money. 
I did this, I did this, uh, worksheet for a group a couple of days ago that I was was speaking to and said, let's, let's look at if you got a 5% loan for the six months you were going to own it versus a 15% loan for the six months you were going to own it. What is the actual difference in dollars about uh, in terms of what that costs you? And in in that particular example, the difference in dollars was only about 2,800 bucks and it was on a deal that was going to make 40,000. So that's why people borrow hard money, despite the fact that it is, quote, expensive. I say, quote, expensive. It is expensive. It's expensive money. But you have to look at it from the uh, point of view of uh, ease. You know, hard money loans usually take like one to two weeks to get through, not 45 days. Uh, you have to look at the fact that hard money lenders will actually loan you more than what you paid for a property, thus giving you repair money, which conventional lenders will not do. Uh, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of reasons why even very experienced people um, still get hard money loans because they are convenient, they're fast, and in raw dollars, that doesn't make that much difference whether you're paying 12 or 15% interest. So thank you very much for your question, Z, and thanks to all of the listeners who contributed questions on this week's question and answer week. We will be back next week with more information to put you on the path to financial independence through real estate investing. Until then, happy investing. Happy investing.